The Kinky Boys Podcast. Exploring one kink at a time. Hello and welcome to the Kinky Boys Podcast. Today we have a returning uh, guest, friend of the show, uh, Pablo Green. Uh, welcome back, Pablo. Hey, it's so delightful to be back. Thank you. <laughs> great to have you back. You're always such a great guest. And today we're here to talk about uh, your latest book release. We are. It's the uh, end I... of, the, of the series, the end of an epic series mm-hmm. of books, yes. We have talked about all the past books, so the last one is called Gold. Um, Why don't you give us a little blurb synopsis about it? Absolutely. Uh, For those of you who may not have heard about uh, the book series, why don't we start there so that you get the the big picture. Uh, The book series kicked off just about five years ago. Uh, I've been doing this for half a decade. It's strange (laughs) to think that it's taken that long. And... uh, the books follow one main character across four books, just like Harry Potter, right? Or Hunger Games. In, in the um, case, it's a little different from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this would be Harry Potter for the filthy um, <laughs> and demented. Uh, but uh, the character's name is Roland. And I'm not going to um, give away all the surprises. But what you need to know is that he encounters a magical occult book. And once he reads that book and has possession of it, big changes start to happen to him. Uh, changes that we as readers would recognize as sort of superhero powers. And uh, across four books, he really struggles and battles with what he should do with these powers. Um, the books are steeped really deep in the world of leather, kink, and BDSM, uh, and queer people. And so uh, it is a series where I've never held the reins uh, back in terms of the eroticism they're Mm -hmm. very erotic books and they're also in a certain way very violent i I really don't hold anything back because i wanted to really explore the world of this this human being uh and his sexuality uh fast forward to the last book lots has happened we've gone all around the world and the last book is called gold just one one word there how to kill a superhero Mm -hmm. book four gold and uh, we are now in the heartland of the United States. We've, we've been all over the place, but now we're back where the story started, which was Kansas City. And uh, Roland is not traveling alone anymore. Now he's got uh, three other companions who are with him in a vehicle uh, headed from New York City into uh, over to Kansas City. And there are newer, bigger, more threatening obstacles to him getting back and basically wanting to undo what this book did to him. You know, it's very clear that uh, he, he struggles with, with the powers that the book brought on. And mm-hmm. in this book, he believes that he can undo um, all these changes. And um, uh-huh. the reader gets to find out whether that happens or not. Oh, brilliant. Well, some of our listeners may have already read these books because I've been recommending them all over the place. So I think halfway through, we're going to put a spoiler warning. So the first half is for people who haven't read the book. And halfway through, I'll put in a spoiler warning and a break. And then we can talk about all the stuff people who have read the book would really like to know. 
That sounds great. How does that sound? Yeah, Brilliant. I love it. Uh, and I do like getting into spoiler uh, territory, mm-hmm. so uh, we can play fair and do it in the second half. Love it. I mean, I've never hit, hidden that I'm a huge nerd, so just getting into the nitty gritty and details is really fun for me. So, <laughs> this book, um, one of the things about this series that I really love, like overall, is how genre defying it is. I mean, it seems harder and harder these days to pigeonhole books into single genres, and authors really seem to be branching out and, you know, taking a bit of everything and not letting themselves be closed in. Um, What would you say gold can be classed under? Uh, I'm going to answer straight off the top of my head so I don't get too Mm -hmm. too talky. It it would be a dark, dark fantasy book. Um, And... That's a very short, distinct way of saying that it, it has elements of uh, spy thrillers. One of the things that mm-hmm. I modeled myself after uh, the structures was the Ian Fleming, James Bond books, which are real short and packed with a lot of action. Uh, so it has a, a touch of that. It has a, a lot of elements of horror, uh, which is the genre uh-huh. that I really cut my teeth on as a reader when I was a teenager. I was a huge Stephen King fan, Peter Straub, Clive Barker. Gold is even dedicated to Clive Barker. Uh, and so horror is a big part of it. But then there is, of course, uh, dark fantasy. Um, mm-hmm. And there is, I guess, what you would call urban fantasy, because my books don't take place in a magical fairy world with castles. They're set here in, in, in our world. Uh-huh. And uh, there's also touches, little flourishes of science fiction, things that are a little bit uh, more science-derived, than the reader would know. And um, that's part of like the larger scope of all my books, which we can talk about later. But uh, I sure. that, that's about all of them. And plus, let's not forget the main one, which many people come to the series for. They're erotic books. They are erotica. And so um, that's another genre that is running through and through in the series. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that really drew me to your books in the first place and why I'm happy to like have you as a sponsor for the show is just how good a quality they are. These are not pounded in the butt by my own butt. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's hilarious. <laughs> You've not heard of the Chuck Tingle books? No, no, no. Tell me about them. And, and is that where that phrase comes from? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you basically started cashing in with cheap novelty erotica from um on the amazon store like selling them for 99 pence and he's a machine and just churns out really topical ones it's like oh yes a couple of years, yes a couple I, of I years ago he now, did yeah. like pounded in the butt by the dress who no one can decide which color it is and <laughs> yes. pounded in the butt by the falling pound after brexit yeah he did dinosaur porn too didn't he yeah. or some of those genres that spin out of current events or memes uh, yes, Th- these are not those books, everybody. This is why they take me so no. long to write. <laughs> but but one side note, just staying on there. He now has a podcast called Pounded in the Back My Own Podcast, <laughs> where he gets famous voice actors to read out his books. <gasps> check it out. Check it out, people. I was laughing my ass off on the way on the train home the other day. It's brilliant. And, and I'm not being ironic. That is he is a brilliant man. I really like yeah. what he's doing. That's uh, he's got a great sense of humor. That's that's terrific. That <laughs> is, but yeah, yours. They're erotic fiction, but they're not hyper focused on that. 
it's sort of a central theme, but your books go so much beyond that and have a depth to them you don't normally see in erotica. Mm-hmm. At least not a wider depth, like around other themes such as changing superheroes, powers, world building. You don't normally find that in the erotica genre, at least not commonly. No, I would agree. Usually it's something that is uh, used very lightly and then thrown away because uh, what I've discovered in a lot of erotica books is uh, the quest for a romantic element or a romantic partner in the series is kind of what drives those books, right? Or or if it's standalone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and um, Roland has some of those same concerns. In each book, there's kind of a love interest that, you know, is driving him crazy or he's obsessed with. But... If I was going to take that extra step to bring in magic, dark fantasy, and superhero elements, and kind of this uh, these conspiracies happening around the world with the FBI, <laughs> I felt like the level of realism needed to be there. This is just the way I work as an author. And um, of course, many readers will point out things and say, oh, there's a plot hole here, or this, is, this couldn't happen. But the way in which I string it all together and kind of weave it into a, like a fabric, uh, it, it gives you that, that sense of like, I really understand or at least can infer what, why things are happening here, where, where this magical book might have been you know, a century ago uh, and what it's doing to these people now. Uh, mm-hmm. And so back to the genre issue, it's, they're very hard to define, I think, even for me, what, what the genre is. They're mo- they're, the books are about Roland. They're really about him. And um, because I have been publishing for a while and I've worked, you know, many, many years in publishing, uh, I understand that a category has to take a book forward. But uh, you know, if it was up to me, I wouldn't put a category to it. And I think readers would discover different things in them. That's why the last book is dedicated to Clive Barker, because he did a lot of uh, similar uh, feats in his writing. He had these very mm-hmm. erotic elements, but the books often were about mysticism or religion or uh, nature. And um, only the readers who really went through his books know that. And that's why we're all obsessed with him because he's he's a master of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, he wasn't afraid. Um, back in the early 2000s, he actually guest wrote for a porn comic series. Mm-hmm. Which, when I was reading, I was like, Really? Clive Barker? But, but, but he's, <laughs> you know, you see him on the bookshelves. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he's uh, these are hard to find. I think now they're more like gallery pieces. But for a while, he on Tumblr, he used to post uh, these photographs that he did as kind of an older person, I think in his 50s and 60s, uh, that were more erotic. Like, they were stage photos with these very gorgeous models, but they were kind of violent and bloody. And he was sometimes in the photos. And... Um, you know, I think I can't speak for him, but I just don't think he's ever held back on what eroticism means on a s- superficial, basic level, and then what's beneath it. You know, where where the role that sex plays in terms of uh, consciousness and the universe and just who we are as a species. I mean, I've always thought one of the things that make truly great writers um, work is. They don't write for something. They write um, what feels true to them. Yes. And it's only once they start doing that that you really get the full force of their writing. 
yes. instead of just trying to box themselves into a certain genre and I've got to hit this point and this point and this point. And it just brings such depth and an authenticity to the work, which I think you've got in yours because um, your these books share a universe with um, a different series of yours, which is aimed at young teens. That, that is correct. Um, let's talk about that for a minute here because uh, yeah. it's been a while since we've talked about those other books, if at all. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something I'm really proud of. You know, as, as gay and queer people, we spend our lifetime, you know, coming out of the closet and mm -hmm. it's not, not just on the day we announce it. It's uh, over many years, right? Sometimes you tell your boss or a new, mm -hmm. a new friend, hey, I'm gay, hey, I'm queer. Um, and you've discussed this on the show as kinky people. We also continue to do that over a lifetime, you know? Oh, Hey, I, I'm into this and I'm into that and I'm not ashamed of it. And so, um, I guess this would be kind of a third artistic coming out, uh, in reverse. I, uh, write other books. Um, those don't have a series name. The first book is just called 13 secret cities, but the the universe is the universe of 13 secret cities. And, uh, indeed those connect, uh, very much into the world of Roland and the gold apocalypse, which is this, this series. And so, um, I'm very proud of those books just as I'm proud of these. And, uh, if any readers care to go down the rabbit hole, that's one thing I'm really good at. I will take you down the rabbit hole and you'll start to see how they connect to each other. And, uh, that's what makes me wake up in the morning every day. The fact that I can kind of like, build that world and show it to people. Wow, that is amazing. So getting a bit into this world and the themes of gold, um, there's a strong streak of both violence, which we previously mentioned, and talking about authoritarianism. Yeah. Sorry, forgive my pronunciation. It's one of those words I always struggle with. Um, but also how they're mixed with um, fetishes oh. um, and sort of the conflict they can bring in people who eroticize those things um, like you talk about gun violence which is um, quite prescient right now um, but also like governmental authority and sort of fetishizing the police and military um, so what made you want to dive into that? Uh, the, what did it was honestly going this deep into the sexuality of, of Roland. And there is, of course, as a writer, as the author of the series, mm -hmm. I have my own kinks, my, my own fetishes, uh, and I can speak to those, but for, for for I think the last 10 years, you know, which is really like the most active that I've been in my sort of kinky life. I've been, I consider myself like having been active like 13 years uh, out. But yeah. um, I, I've often wondered, you know, like what we know that when we enter a BDSM relationship, even if it's for 30 minutes of a session, it's make-believe. You know, you, you, put, you put yourself in that role, top, bottom, master, mm -hmm. sir, whatever, and in you go, and then out you you come out. Uh, but in terms of what it really means, like what what that what that's touching on internally, I wanted to explore that. 
And I know other people do this in other ways, uh, but mm -hmm. for me, it is in the writing. And there is a darkness that exists in that world of uh, BDSM that is not just dressing up in leather. The darkness actually is a place of violence and control, like literally violence, right? And, yeah. um, and I wanted my character to experience that and the, the, the other characters to feel the real repercussions of what that is. And uh, the reason why there is a stronger element of authoritarianism in this universe I mm -hmm. built uh, is one, it reflects ours. What's happening to most westernized countries, which is the shift to the right, fascism, authoritarianism, mm -hmm. it is really here. No one's imagining it. It's actually happening, right? And um, there are so many elements of BDSM that get played out as a metaphor that you see every day. Some people may complain, oh, you know, Trump did this and I can't stand uh, Betsy Devos and et cetera. Mm -hmm. But they continue to be swept into the the drama of it and don't really make changes. That That is a type of a master-slave relationship that they may not have the words for, but I, I can sort of see that. And I'm not excusing myself from it either. I have my own faults, right, and my own uh, weaknesses as a person. But yeah. um, there's also this polarization politically where uh, both on the deep left and then on the deep right, there is a, a hardcore belief that people are right. You know, if I'm on the extremes of these political polls, mm -hmm. like I am right and I have to show the world that I'm right and you will do what I say and you will, you know, uh, change your behavior so that you are correct. That is the way in which a BDSM sir or alpha or master uh, would work with a sub right and, and make them make them change their behavior teach them discipline uh i really felt it was important to kind of break that out and not judge it so what i attempted to do especially in the last two mm -hmm. books is to say that darkness that thirst for control or for submission is part of every every human being and what does it look like when some people abuse that power and when others don't, when others kind of uh, have, I guess, maybe more virtue. Um, and what does it all mean? And I don't have the answers. All I have is the questions posed to the readers. So when readers read the book, they can sort of figure that out for themselves. But uh, I didn't know at the beginning when I started this book series that it would take me to that place. It's the, the story and the characters uh -huh. took me there. And um, it's one of the reasons why I'm not sure if I will write further about Roland because the way in which I unpack that is unique to him. So uh, we'll talk later about, you know, sequels and spinoffs. Yeah. They are coming, but, uh, <laughs> but we, I cannot repeat the series in that way, which is what a lot of authors usually have to do. They're forced to kind of repeat what they just did. And I will not do that. So uh, that's because th this topic is so important to me, like to, to look at the scary part of human nature, stare it in the face and go, is that part of me? And people that can say, yes, that is part of me, usually kind of take a, I think, a deeper step into integrating all of this and, and maybe make, having some peace internally. People who always believe that they're good or right are very dangerous, I think. And you can see that in the books. 
Oh yeah, it, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than um, a person that believes they're completely and utterly justified in what they do. It's, I mean, I think we've all collectively started to sort of look at the world as it is mm-hmm. because we have become so polarized and i mean there's a lot to do with it i personally am looking i've been looking a lot into how the way our communication platforms like facebook and twitter are structured pushes us towards certain behaviors mm-hmm. and it's not just oh everyone's suddenly always been this way when we just have a platform the methods we use to talk to one another, especially now that they're algorithmically filtered, really changes um, how people interact and what sort of extremes it pushes you into. One of the best... This is getting a bit deep into it. For the last several months, I've been using an alternative to Twitter called Mastodon. Uh, listeners of the show know I always give that out as a profile people can contact me on and it's a microblogging service like Twitter so it's limited word count retweet or retoot rather but the creators refuse to replicate the quote function uh, so you can't quote a tweet and like something. and the reason they gave for it is because as soon as you do that it stops being an interaction with a person and become performative for an audience. You take what was originally said and you point at it and you say it's good or it's bad. You do not interact with it. And I think it is so important to just not passively use platforms. I think we need to actively look at how we're communicating with each other. Mm-hmm. And that has been such a big part of how the world has been changing lately yeah we're we're in a mm. we're in a really critical uh phase i think of our development in terms of like digital life mm-hmm. and um th- this might I, i'm sure things can always get worse but it, it feels like the we are the worst of our behaviors and our attitudes are just uh, almost being mirrored back by the technology, even though mm-hmm. it's curated and there's algorithms. Uh, I fact, would say that's making it, that's making it worse because yeah. anger, violence, political strife, that drives engagement on metrics. Yep. And that's what they're after. I mean, there's a great political philosophy um, about, what they call um, unfrozen times where you go through large patches of history where an overarching paradigm is sort of set and people don't question it and it is taken as um, how things should be. And then you go into an unfrozen time where people start questioning things and the old paradigm starts failing in lots of new ways and people start questioning and actively looking for something new and you could say say the 60s were the last time this happened where you know society was upheaved tons of new ideas started becoming experimented with and we're seeing that now the sort of i know 
oh god this is going to get so political i know the term neoliberalism has been thrown around a lot as a sort of catch-all term for what people don't like but the neoliberal consensus is sort of failing with dropping in living standards and how many people are becoming breadline and how even though the stock market's going up that's not really helping real people and people are starting to look for alternatives or people away from the mainstream to try and bring in new ideas for better or for worse So yeah, that's politics. <laughs> that's politics, and and I think there there is a there is a uh, let let's say a future podcast that we could do um, where, where we could go deeper into that. In fact, for for readers who are curious, uh, there's plenty of political allegory, I guess, in uh, my this book series, uh, How to Kill a Superhero. But uh, I I kind of go even further in the other books on what that is. So maybe we can come back to that one day and kind of connect it all. But um, sure, I agree. I'd love uh, to. Things are dark, and I uh, for authors, at least for this one, you know, um, the book can be a reflection of the the state that an author is in, and uh, it is no. I guess in the end, it's no surprise to me that the the series is is so grim. Yeah, it's, I mean, I've been struggling a lot with this and I've sort of, I've had to look into sort of more utopian ideals. Like I'm very into solar punk right now because it's one of the few genres that is actually about um, utopic thinking and saying we do have the power to make things better. Mm-hmm. And... There's actually a lot of seeds of good stuff coming out right now, like things like the cooperative business model is actually becoming way more popular and being adopted way more. You see a sort of like community self-cohesion coming together to fill gaps and sort of like uh, to give a good example that got quite popular is um, the mesh internet work. Um, small towns and dilapidated cities are employing because big utilities won't invest in small towns or places like Detroit for decent internet. So people have got together and basically made their own through mesh networks. And this is sort of people are sort of taking an almost I will do it myself because no one else is stepping in sort of attitude. And I can see that being seeds of something quite good on the horizon. But again, we're kind of veering off into politics. Yeah, and what people want is they want to know about the, these um, boner-inducing books that I write. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because even though things are grim, um, uh, the sexuality you know, runs through and through. And uh, what I hear a lot from people, from readers, is don't read this in a Speedo at the beach or don't read this on the subway <laughs> because you're going to be embarrassed. <laughs> oh yes like. um i mean that's the joy of because i've got all yours through kindle and the joy of the kindle is no one knows what you're reading yeah it's it's true and uh, i hear this a lot i actually had a um a reader who uh 
picked up the series for the first time, and uh, it's very unfortunate what happened. Uh, he's not fully out to his family, mm-hmm. and he uh, he didn't realize what the subtitle of the first book was. So uh, the, the books are, you know, it's books one through four, and the first one mm-hmm. is A Gay Bondage Manual. The second is World Without Daylight. Third is Transformation Fetish, and then there's Gold. But that first volume has a very provocative title, which is hilarious to me. And um, he opened it up like with his family. <laughs> it arrived from Amazon. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, and no. He, he didn't know how to explain it. And it was awkward. And, uh, you know, he said, it's, it's not your fault. I should have paid more attention to it. But um, that's in a way kind of uh, I'm not speaking about him. I'm speaking about experiences I've had with books in particular. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the magic of books, because even before you are ready to come out to the world, your reading materials are already explaining that. And before I ever came out, I had a, a bunch of books on coming out and gay life and queer studies. And um, I guess if my family had run into those books, they would have been like, what's going on here? And you know what? For me personally, I can't speak for that reader, but for me, things worked out OK. I mean, little personal history here i basically came out because my mum found my uh john benson books under my bed there you go there you yeah go. so you know hand little to all books <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah so let's talk about you mentioned this goes back to the heartland of america Yes. In all your books, you've chosen a different location, and each of them has had a very different feel. So, second one, you went to Australia, and that was quite desolate and very open and wild. Uh, third one was in New York, and you got a sense of interacting with people and sort of the human things going on in the world at the time. Uh, so, what was you trying to say with this book uh, in this setting? Uh, this this fourth one, um, first of all, you know, again, it, it really shows the the motivations of the character. This character wants to do things well for himself and for other people, so he's really returning home. You know, his his home city is Kansas City, so it really is about that return home. And uh, you know, it's it's um, there's no connection there. There was never intentional. But some people have said, well, isn't that like Dorothy from Wizard of Oz? Uh, th- that's uh, Wizard of Oz is almost like an archetype at this point. Mm-hmm. So, again, I did, you know, I don't do things like that consciously, but uh, the return home in a journey is really, really important. The Odyssey, right? That, that's, that's yeah, the un- hero's journey, the sort of big, yeah. grand right. meta story. And I also knew that the way that my books come out, you know, I don't really write happy books. Uh, it wasn't going to be easy. And so the return back to the United States needed to be internally in the United States. I think the, uh, the big cities are enjoying some, um, some great advantages over the rest of the country that you only see them when you are in the city. You know? And so like if I'm in Chicago or New York, the, the cities where I live, uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're kind of shielded from a lot of the more visible problems of racism and uh, income inequality. But in the smaller states or smaller cities, it, it, it is more tangible. 
And I'm not judging either side. Um, I, of course, am more of a liberal and I, I believe in uh, women's rights, uh, income equality, etc. Uh, but however, there, there are legitimately human beings uh, who are going through their own struggles in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to paint a picture that uh, looks like what I think America looks like today. When you go into the interior of the country, things aren't as rosy and picket fences mm-hmm. white picket fences as, as they used to be. And uh, that's a reality that I choose to look at in the books. I would rather choose to look at quote-unquote reality than um, a facade. Or a, or a fantasy. And so, uh, the return home is, um, they don't go through too many cities. In fact, they go through some very small places, but, uh, they also encounter surprises. In some places, small cities are thriving or growing in interesting ways. And the values of people, uh, in particular, uh, Gunnar Solis, one of the new characters, um, mm-hmm. are both at odds with Roland and his politics and his beliefs, but also Gunnar tends to, happens to be a very, uh, good person and uh that to me is kind of a metaphor of like what you see today in the united states yeah people tend to really sort of try and push people they don't know into an archetype that they've already made sort of sort of left wing right wing small town person big town person and it's never that simple and i loved how you explored that here I mean, I also say because they're traveling so much through all these different towns, it gives it a feel of like a road trip movie almost. Well, well, that that is on purpose, and that's for two reasons. Uh, as as many readers will note by now, some of my biggest influences from the writing point of view are not just novelists, but it's also film directors and film writers, and uh, some of David Lynch's road trips through America are the weirdest fucking things you will ever experience. Mm-hmm. And so part of it is tipping my hat to David Lynch because he, his version of America is freaky and strange and dreamlike. And I wanted to recreate some of that in my own way. And then number two, um, for any of your listeners who are not from the United States or who haven't had the chance to visit, A, you should still visit. But B, there is something so uniquely American about the road trip in a car that once you experience it once here, you go, oh, that is this really cool thing that you can only really do it in America, the way that Americans do it. And uh, I wanted to show that uh, in, in this very bleak world of my world that I created, um, because I I do think uh, Roland is a very American character. You know, he travels all over the world, but uh, in the end, you know, he, this is where he started from. And um, I felt like the road trip book would be great because I also love road trip books. So it was pleasing myself and hopefully readers too. Oh, I think, I think you did a great job of it. Um, so one of the things that goes on is more so than any other book, I think monstrous imagery really played a large part of this book. Yes. And what I mean is, um, like you get much more sort of things that can be classed as monsters um, that the gang keep running into, but also Roland himself becomes quite monstrous in parts. Mm-hmm. 
What is it about that that intersects with sort of violence and the sexuality in the book? So this is this really is the the big Pandora's box of all questions. Uh, yeah. Let's start from the beginning, which is my beginning as a person on this planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as I was able to read, I really read everything I could. I, I just love reading. And like many little boys, um, I'm going to generalize here and sound a little misogynistic, but I think boys, for some reason, do get attracted a lot to... Uh, uh, a lot of role play that has monsters in them. I don't know mm-hmm. why that me, this particular little boy loved monsters, but, uh, anything from the chimera to, uh, Pegasus to Medusa. And then of course, mm-hmm. with the mythology that I grew up with, which would be, uh, Aztec and Maya, uh, and colonial Mexico. There's also myths from colonial Mexico that are interesting. Uh, I just love them. I just love them. And I grew up uh, watching horror movies and, and, uh, you know, uh, getting obsessed with even things like um, Transformers and Thundercats. Uh, Some of my most favorite memories of all those different things have to do with the monster. There is a robustness and a vastness of the monster that is, does have a, I guess, a sexual component and I think that sexual component is part of an archetype that is also something uh, even more colossal. Uh, so it, when we think about the vastness of the universe, you know, this sort of uh, Stephen Hawking kind of like world uh-huh. that he paints with black holes and, and galaxies, a good monster, whether it's the werewolf or Megatron or one of my monsters, makes you feel like, holy shit, there's something much bigger than, than me. And uh, one of the things I've always wanted to do, and now I'm doing it, is create monsters that had depth to them. Not every single monster is out to kill you, uh, but they're all pretty dangerous if their power is used in a particular way. And uh, mm-hmm. I think it, it doesn't happen in every book, but in many of my books, uh, the real monster is not the monster. The real monster is usually a human being. <laughs> who has some, yeah, some yeah. deeper problems. Um, and I share some similarities too, I guess, with uh, a filmmaker you may have heard about. He won that little statuette called the Oscar. Yeah. Um, Guillermo del Toro is also from Mexico. He's from, um, what city is he from? I think he's from Guanajuato originally. Um, but as little kids growing up in Mexico, culturally, there are a, a million stories that are told and retold to children and then between children that have to do with uh, myths, legends, and even religious mm-hmm. stories. Uh, stories from the Bible also feature these gigantic, crazy monsters. And it's no surprise to anybody, probably, that when I was like 10 or 11 and I was studying the Bible and catechism, I think I annoyed the instructor. I would ask a lot of questions about the book of Revelations because I was obsessed with these monsters that appear at the end of the world. <laughs> And so it's, oh, it's been a lifetime yeah. of this. It's been a lifetime of this. And uh, my, my new book, which is separate from this, is called uh, Nine Lords of Night. It comes out later this summer. And the monsters get even more interesting because they are connected to some of the monsters from this book. So uh, I cannot help it. And I almost can't even explain, uh, answer the question correctly because it's such a deep part of me to explore monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just can't help it. But uh, the sexuality of a monster, I think, um, 
academics are maybe better at uh, exploring this. From my point of view, there is something beastly and monsterish about sex. I'm not talking about BDSM, but just sex itself. And uh, I think it was important it, to show it, it. I mean, it gets quite primal and base and, you yeah. know, it's all teeth and claws and, and I blood. mean, especially with some of the people I know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, just look at the, the the world of nature. It's already there for us to look at, but many species, uh, you know, it might usually be the female in the insect world, but she will eat her partner after copulating. I, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that to me is, that's a monster right there. And it's, it is beautiful. I don't judge it. Um, but there's parts of that that I wanted to bring out in this because I just knew from day one, I was never going to write a Cape Crusader, cute men in tights making, you know, saying one-liners uh, into a book series. I, I, I knew yeah. that there was going to be kind of a, a shadow over what I was going to be doing with this. And you see it here, the, the, the sex scenes and the, the scenes of violence kind of cross over, like the sexuality kind of blends uh, in terms of what you're feeling as a reader. Yeah, you very much mix. And it's, I mean, what brought this question on is I was actually looking at, um, I was doing research into um, like people that fetishize uh, comic book characters, obviously. And it led me to a Venom fan blog. Sure. And the word terophilia came up, which is the sexual attraction to monsters. And this is what a lot of people who really fetishize Venom have in the sec. And it's quite interesting because the same motifs came up over and over again, which is if you type it into Google image, um, images of people with really sharp teeth and really sharp claws and just quite human but other kept coming up and it's that same sort of motif i just got the sense that there's something deeper going under that sort of like being attracted to this animalistic predator sort of thing well uh, you know, th- th- this this answer, I guess, maybe would be better uh, covered by some of our top scientists or maybe <laughs> even uh, Camille Paglia or whatever. But uh, I-, I will say, from just my opinion, a lot of human sexuality rooted in biology, so the way that mm-hmm. uh, our genes and our hormones determine mm-hmm. our behavior and even how our visual system is put together, um, again... I, I believe in consent and, mm-hmm. um, and and loving loving relationships that include sexual components. However, there is something about human sexuality that becomes quite feral very very soon, and it mm-hmm. it is what we're talking about. It is it is claws plunging into flesh, biting. Uh, it is a frenetic kind of like copulation that. Um, you know, I think it the, the abuse of it is when, um, I mean, we live in a world where, where the graphic sex that we can see is that intense. I mean, there's mm-hmm. the, the world of pornography, like BDSM pornography now. It is, there are things that are visible out there that I didn't ever think would be possible uh, to, to see yeah. on a screen. And, and there they are. 
And I don't know whether they're good or bad, to be honest. I, I actually don't have the answer. Um, the thing that worries me is that sometimes human beings, real people, get exploited. And in the world of my books, these are fictional worlds, right? So it's, it's, I think the approach is a little different. But uh, what it touches on is something uh, that I just believe exists in a lot of people. I don't know how many. I'm not a social scientist. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't have data to back this up. But I think most human beings, and especially men, uh, do have that uh, predatory kind of instinct. And uh, I just don't think it's good to ignore it. I think it needs to be addressed. Well, I mean, BDSM in general is sort of, as a space, as a play, as a thing we do, is taking the darker aspects and putting them into a fun, safer context. Yes sort of acting out um, fantasies in a way that won't long-term harm people, if it's done right. And and in a way in which will also help the person um, reach new depths of understanding of themselves. I think there's almost a shamanistic aspect of BDSM that people underplay. It can really help people become more confident in who they are, if, if it's done safely and well obviously oh i mean pushing people is something i thought let me start again um saying the shot there's a shamanistic aspect to it i think really touches on something a lot deeper which in bdsm a lot of the time you deal a lot with embodying archetypes and you know, forcing your brain into altered states, like subspace is basically a semi-trance state where your mode of thinking changes and digging up bits from your id a lot more regularly and bringing them to the surface. So I think there's a lot to be said about that. And I would love um, at some point to do a show about people that use shamanistic practices in sex. Mm-hmm. Because there's some people around London at the socials I've met that are leather shaman. And they sort of... They actively encourage that part of the BDSM lifestyle. Well, I think that, uh, first of all, that would be super interesting. I can't wait to hear that episode. (laughs) Uh, But I also think um, people don't need the designation of shaman in order to be a BDSM shaman. Oh, no. Uh, Usually, you know, the... Some of the better aspects of that word, shaman, are, are healer. And you certainly meet either subs or doms uh, in a lifetime where you just think to yourself, you know, this person gets real into the scene, but they, they're also helping me as a, as a person. They have, they have a good heart and they're, they're helping me push through to this new level. That's a shaman right there. And in particular, um, you know, tying it back to the series, I wanted to show that without being so explicit. And so there's two relationships that are so important to the series um, that Roland has. One is with uh, Stefan, you know, mm-hmm. who's his lover across a, a couple of the books. Uh, that relationship, you know, I think for, for each other, they're each other's shaman because they, they really do have a great BDSM life together. They have their little issues. They overcome them. But mm-hmm. there's that. And then there's um, 
David Dalian, who is not sexually involved with uh, Roland, but actually understands how, on some level, how shamanism works. So they go through a series of kind of rituals in, in book two that uh, definitely allow Roland to get better at what he's doing. Uh, but they're directly tied to BDSM. You know, Roland ends up tied up in a wetsuit to a pole <laughs> for two weeks, <laughs> two weeks, right? With hard-ons. We know he's got a hard-on because we know that what he's sort of thinking about and what, what's happening with the book. Um, and that is definitely a type of shamanism. Um, and for any listeners, you know, if you've ever been inside mm-hmm. a, a deep subspace or a sleep sack or hooded for a long time, uh, the removal of the sensory input is not all that different from what some uh, meditators can achieve, right? Uh, or, mm-hmm. or shamans in you know, the Amazon would do uh, to just achieve different states of consciousness. And so um, I don't want to over-elevate it because I think BDSM is also just fun and a lot of people don't look at it that way. But in my books, I was definitely going to touch on that because there's a mystical element to the books that I think uh, I wanted to show those edges of BDSM and... Uh, mysticism i guess oh yeah i mean the other day i gave a friend of mine his first experience in the long term i didn't uh mummified so that sort of sleep sack where sensory deprivation and no simulation for he was in it for a good hour and a half and the first thing he came out of it said huh it's kind of like dying but nice Absolutely. That's the exact words he used for it. And I just thought that's a very interesting way to put it. It's sort of sort of that destruction of the self you get. It, it's just such a shame that the average person, you know, normies, uh, like they, they're so scared of BDSM <laughs> that they never discover that, that, you know, there's these outer edges of uh, or deeper edges of the of that world where you, you can discover that. As long as you're doing it with somebody who's got a good head on their shoulders and treats you with respect. Yeah. yeah. Knows what they're doing. I mean, you can get a lot of growth from it, especially from long-term relationships. Like, touching on what we talked about earlier about authority and authoritarianism, they're often in power exchange relationships. You see what the subs get out of it is a lot of personal growth from having a sort of paternalism around them about someone pushing them to be better by a plan and sort of really driving them and someone they can trust has their best interests at heart while doing that yeah and it's elusive you know it's it it is hard to find Uh, some some people find it all the time some some don't so uh Okay, so if we could step back for a moment, uh, going back to the theme of fetishizing the police. Um, so you bring up, obviously, the police are the most favorite people in America right now by a large group, um, especially people on the left. Yeah, you also see, especially in BDSM, the image of the policeman being fetishized. Yeah, it's um, it's there, and in in our world of uh, BDSM and mm-hmm. leather people, um, 
you know, we, there's a, there's a long legacy that goes even further back than Tom of Finland, of course, but mm-hmm. he kind of uh, seals it um, visually for people. But uh, it goes back to uniforms from the world wars, right? What those uniforms look like. And those are um, uniforms that symbolize power, uh, mm-hmm. military, police power. And uh, if you just cruise enough on Tumblr, you know, within, I don't know, five seconds of a couple of searches, you you find lots of police uh, uniforms that are part of the fetish. Now, let me let me just explain here that I love those uniforms, too. So I'm not here to critique it. I think that they're super hot and the fetish is very clear. You know, it's a authority figure who who's going to keep you under control in one way or another, whether they're arresting you, beating you down, putting the handcuffs on you, you know, you're, you're under their control. Um, and from an artistic point of view, I, I don't, I don't see anything and sexual point of view. I don't see anything wrong with that. It's, it's sort of built into who we are, you know, uh, even there's there's a book series I, I hate to mention. You know what I'm going to say. I hate I hate to name these books, <laughs> but we have to. The most popular books on the planet are Fifty Shades of Grey, and even though the, the the one of the main characters is not a policeman, he's such a stern authority figure who abuses a lot of power too. Uh, he's not all that different from you know being a authority figure in a uniform. Uh, telling this this woman what to do and owning her sexually, uh, I think we have to understand that it's part of understanding the what makes us tick as human beings, where our sexuality comes from. And in in these books, I I wanted to go there. You know, some of the in some of the earlier books, some of the characters mention it, um, mm-hmm. but in this particular book, and this is uh, I guess a spoiler. Uh, Nathan, you know, he plays a larger role. He certainly has more interactions than ever before with other characters. And he's, he's part of the FBI. He's worn uniforms. He's wearing one in the series and, uh, it's pretty hot. But he's just kind of sick of it. You know, even though he's been part of the leather community in one way or another, he's with this troop of people, you know, these, they're, they're called the queer punks in the book. Uh, he's, he just gets pissed off at them. He says, you know, you're pissed off at the police right now in terms of like where America is at. Uh, it's too much, too, too violent, too oppressive. Uh-huh. But, but you, we give you the biggest hard on too, right? And I think that, that, uh, pointing out that paradox is so important. It's the same as with violence. Uh, we all like to say, oh, there's too much violence and sex and it's horrible. But when you watch a commercial or you get like a sh- stupid meme on, um, or a video on your Facebook feed, uh, or, you know, you just go to the movies, uh, more than anything, violence is the, the big factor there. So there's a part of human beings that is, whether it's sexual or not, they're turned on by, by violence. And um, I, I really wanted Nathan to have those words in the book. There's no solution to it, right? It's not like they figure some, some utopia out of it. But he, he gets pissed off. He's like how, you know, you, you keep wanting to fetishize cops in particular. And uh, at the same time, you don't want them. And uh, that, that's his point of view. That's his unique point of view. I'm not saying it's mine. But for, as a character, uh, that's, that's where he's at. And um, it's relevant because uh, in the world of fetish, even for some of my tastes, you know, 
uh, I've always loved the cop uniform. And I might put some of that gear on and, you know, go to an event or have a scene. And, uh, you know, I, I at least think about it. Even if I can't resolve everything for myself in terms of, like, how troubling it might be, I at least have, have gone down that yeah. rabbit hole and yeah. thought a little bit about it. And we also just have to have fun. A lot of the BDSM leather stuff is make-believe, like cosplay. So when I think about it that way, I'm like, well, it's all right. It's cosplay. Yeah, I mean, a friend of my friend of mine famously says it's just cops and robbers for adults. It is. It is literally that sort of getting really into the make-believe fantasy of it. And... I think we touched on it before in our conversation this episode where we talk, we've talked about how fetish gives us a safe space to explore complex ideas. Yes. And contradictory feelings. It's sort of, I mean, going back to the 50 shades of gray, it's when you look at what's happening there, like all throughout the book, it's a man in a high powered business position using that to sort of inflict his will and authority onto a woman sexually. And we have the stuff like the Me Too movement coming out, where it's basically talking about the reality of that. Right. Which is quite horrifying. But at the same time, you see in a lot of heterosexual women-aimed BDSM, the powerful authority businessman is an archetype often pulled upon and it just goes back to that thing of bdsm is often taking the things that scare us or we find complicated in the world and filtering them through our sexual subconscious almost yes. yeah it's, it's allowing us to touch those things mm. f just for a moment and, and i think that's the the really neat part about it is uh for let's say it's two hours, you know, you, you get to live that, but you don't have to be in it the whole time. And, um, you know, the, uh, writing these books is a way of sharing that too. I, I don't know if that will carry across to people mm. who are more vanilla, but uh, the element of role play and how, how you can access some of these darker aspects or, or just different aspects of human nature, it really is in there. Cause role play, uh, Roland is role playing the whole, you know, throughout all the yeah. books. Uh, even though he has his big secret and his superpowers, he he's a good bottom and he's a good top at different points. And he loves being in that make-believe world. Um, and I wanted to show that. That is one of the positive aspects of the, the book, the brighter, brighter aspects, I would call it. Hey, folks. This interview went on uh, for quite a while. So I decided to split off the spoilers into its own separate episode, which you can listen to part two next time. Until then, uh, I hope you keep well. <laughs>